all these traumas, all these like things that happen in my life, but I feel that I'm always a happy, the most positive person among all my friends. Like I feel that I, and before that workshop, I felt that I had the most stable mental <laughs> health. So I go and the, the professor who was, you know, leading the workshop, he said, he made us do an assessment and he passes on some questions and he says, um, so now you will check. I think it was 12 questions, I believe. So you will check any of these that you went through in your life. Like, so a person killed in front of your eyes, like stuff like that. And I mm -hmm. keep checking, checking. And he goes like any person with more than seven um, boxes checked, this person needs severe mental treatment. Guess how many of them I had? I swear, either 12 or 13. And I was kind of like nice to myself. I didn't check some that I was like, ah, not oh. very much involved. And I was like, oh my God, then I have to be in a mental health facility. So I <laughs> raised my hand and I say, yeah, not like a normal person, you know, living in the society. So I raised my hand and it was so fascinating to me because like it was first time attending such a workshop about mental health. Mm -hmm. So I told the professor, I told him, I told him what I just told you now. I said like, and I feel that I'm the most stable person. Like all my friends come to me if they have an issue or if they have a debate at work, I'm the person that it's the most dependent on in like fixing like uh, escalated issues or like right. calming people down, like bring people to common grounds and stuff like that I was always very much known for that and I said like tell me how like scientifically from what you just explained and the assessment I'm supposed to be a really psychopath not a normal person hmm. so what he he asked me some some questions about where I am from how was my social circle when I when growing up so when I told him he said that you are so lucky that you grown up in a society where people are still bonded together. Welcome to the GM Foundation podcast. I'm Joshua Governali, your humble host as we journey through our shared human experience with authors, experts, and human rights advocates. So, uh, Diman, thanks for joining. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you I'm, so I'm much really happy to have you. I'm, I'm so happy to be with you too. Thanks so much. Yeah, so um, we actually met when we, at an event for my previous guest, um, um, Zaid Rifkani, and we met at his book event. And then you and I got to talking and I realized that you were one of these kind of remarkable people at the event and you were actually such a good uh, public speaker. And I, I just feel like more people need to hear more about your story um, and your kind of journey to where you are now. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit first about um, your life now, uh, what, what you're doing for a living, and, and then we'll kind of get into how you got, got here. Yeah, absolutely, Josh. I really appreciate your remarks, actually. It's um, really, you know, appreciative. I do, yeah, I, I leave, like, I, I moved with my family to the U.S. 15 years ago. I'm originally from Kurdistan, from the city of Erbil, mm -hmm. which is the capital of the southern Kurdistan. And um, I currently am currently working as a um, program manager or supervisor for the London County Department of Family Services. And this is where my passion is, the public service. So this is what I do for living now. And it's kind of a passion for me as well. So I enjoy what I'm doing now. Let's put it that way. And um, yeah, I live with my family. I have two daughters. They both are grown up now. My older one, Julia, she's in med school. She's in medical school. She's um, second. She will be second year in med school. Lara is my younger one. And um, she goes to UVA, Charlottesville, last year of um, college. 
and um, I'm a very proud mom of them both. <laughs> and yeah, I do also like uh, enjoy being involved in the Kurdish community. So that event, for example, that you attended was one of the events that I usually try to co-host or um, help setting up such events. I mean, to me, it's it's so nice when you bring the community together. And I didn't see that when we moved to the state. This was the main struggle for me when when I first came to the U.S. Yeah, so being part of those events and just like randomly, not, not politically like arranged or anything, but randomly helping with those kind of social events, intellectual events, it's, it's a passion for me as well. Uh, how do you normally... You know, get, how did you originally get involved and how do you uh, help host these events? Do you work through an organization or is it personal connections or? I mean, mostly personal connections, Josh. When I moved, like I was a very, very social and involved in the community, like in my social circle back in Kurdistan. And when we first moved, the biggest struggle for me was not having the same social life that I had back home, not having the circle of social support that I had back home. And that was really hard for me. So what I did, I tried to, I tried to build that. I started with like, I only, I barely knew few few people in the area where I live now when, when we first moved. And through mm-hmm. them, I got to know some other people. Like, and I see that this area is full of very, very well-established in like um, educated Kurdish um, people, and for me to be to be with people that share the same interests, the same culture was something important. So I tried to build it, and I started with really small, like women gatherings, just going to a restaurant, like 10, 15 women together, and you know, sharing ideas, sharing um, talks about like kids school at that time like mm-hmm. of course like the kids were m- much younger and um and years later we we decided with few individuals we decided to establish a formal foundation or like a non-profit organization okay um with you know management that includes all politically, non-politically affiliated individuals that will be just working on promoting like the, the connection between kids, the, you know, introducing our kids to, to our culture, to, to, to the values that we have and putting some light on, on the many, many talents that we have in the in the area between the Kurds living mm-hmm. in Washington DC area so we called the, the KCDC um, the Kurdish community in greater Washington DC area and uh, you know it's so sad Josh that there are no independent voice of Kurds in this area so it we couldn't formalize it there were so many um, I don't know, not oppositions, but people who just for the sake of being in the leading, um, in the leading positions for that organization. So to a point that, I don't know, we were so discouraged to uh, to do the events that we did. But this is how I got to know, like Kenny Hulam, for example, like some some people who really care about the, the the Kurdish identity in, in this area. And like yeah. whatever we did, whatever we do, it's all on a very, very, um, I don't know, it's it's so independently. We didn't get budget from anyone. We were just putting some budget from our pockets every time we met. So mm-hmm. it was not financed or supported by anyone. But for me, that was the events that we did. We made so many I mean, we hosted so many good events that were, if if they really, if we had the support, it would have been a really good foundation for a good Kurdish community in, in mm-hmm. this area. So I mean, I've, maybe I've found, one day. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, on that point, uh, I found that, you know, the Kurdish community is 
um, divided on a lot of issues and things do tend to get highly politicized. I'm not a Kurd, so I kind of look at it from this this outside perspective. Um, But I have noticed that that there's always the kind of... um, there, there is a lot of times a, a political agenda within lots of Kurdish communities. And I think what you were trying to do was actually really admirable and a, a good step forward because I've also spoken with um, the kind of next generation of uh, from Kurdish immigrant families. These are like, like um, I mean, I don't, your children weren't born in the United States, right? But um Oh no, uh, my my kids, my Gina was nine years old, and that was sick. So when we moved, they yeah. were yeah, they were in yeah. school already. And so, and, and a lot of kids, you know, of that generation who were born in the United States, they have less of a um, political affiliation to their to right. their culture, but they do seem to cherish the you know the cultural aspects of being Kurdish. Um, they do, and and it's actually you know. I really like like all of the clothing and all of the music and those kinds of cultural things that you miss out on um, yeah. growing up in, in a different culture and in a different country. It is. I mean, it's so fascinating, fascinating, like Josh, like, because we, like the Kurds have such a rich culture, such a rich, like on all different levels, but unfortunately, like with there are a few different waves of, of you know of Kurdish immigration to the US. Like the first one I would say, maybe the, the one the first major one I would say was in the 70s, 74, 75, where um you know supporters are of of Mala Mustafa Barzani they who you know um, had to flee to Iran, they were eventually settled to the U.S. That's a big population of them. And the, the, the problem with those, it's just like they moved at a time where the, the Kurdish movement was really like something very, very, I don't know how to say it, but like um, people were so suppressed by the regimes at that point and they were so touched to the political part of their movements of their lives so they they moved based on that uh, opposition to the regime then and then the other major um wave of immigra- immigration of Kurds to the u.s happened in 1996 like those that era that era and that was based on, uh, you know, the, the political problems back home where Saddam tried to take part, t- take the take the region back from the, the Kurdish um, control. And at that time, the civil war between the different Kurdish political parties were like at the utmost, like, you know, was was at the top. And those people who came at that time, they were also like, you know, they came with a cluster that, ah, Kurdish, like the the major two parties, like we have something similar to the Republicans and the Democrats. So they Mm -hmm. came with that concept in mind. But eventually like this, I mean, it still is something back home, but people are more, more, I would say, like, politically affiliated, but more into the Kurdish, like, developing the Kurdish, more developing the Kurdish language, for example, developing the Kurdish culture, um, supporting the arts, supporting the the education, like, stuff like that. And I, I was one of those who came, I moved to the U.S. in 2007. So between 2003 and 2007, it was one of the best, Era, I would say for 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 Kurdistan, like with the blooming of development of um, construction of the two parties unified again. So, like one of the latest jobs after years with the United Nations, the last job that I had with um, like in Kurdistan before I moved was um, establishing the UN um, coordination, the UN coordination office. We called it mm-hmm. ACUNA at that time. And 
that office was when we established it. It was myself, Dindar Zibari, and I, another friend of mine who lives in Canada now. We were the first unified office in, in between the two governments in Suleimani and Hawler. I remember, like, because UN after UN flitted after 2003, after 2004, actually, after the major like explosion. That. So they decided to come back and they wanted, like, the two governments decided to have one voice talking at least to the first international representation in Kurdistan, which was the United Nations. So they established a joint office between the two administrations that is authorized by the two parties or the two administrations in Slimani and Hawler to speak in beha- on behalf of Kurds with the United mm-hmm. Nations and the international agencies. So I came with that in mind. I was working, you know, at the, you know, Council of Ministers as probably the first independent politically non-affiliated person, but I did see how much they appreciated the hard work. They appreciated the 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 real work that I put into, and my colleague as well was politically non-affiliated, and we were working so hard. So this is when they realized they, there are Kurds who are really capable of providing for no reason, just because like they you know, part of this nation and they want the Kurds to be up there in a different level. So I came to the U.S. with that mindset. And, um, you know, when I saw people are so divided, like I would be calling for a meeting and some people would say, no, don't call that people. or don't invite that mm-hmm. people. They are from that party. And or maybe they say, why invited people from the other party first, not us first? So this was kind of struggle, but what we try to find, it's just an independent voice of Kurds. And I will, I will go back to that. Like COVID, COVID participated in, in holding that or putting it on a freeze for a while, but hopefully in the next few years, we will be able to, to build such an independent Kurdish voice in the area. So I like um, I like that you brought that up because that's where I was kind of talking about is your time working um, with the UN uh, in in you know in what was developing uh, the Kurdistan region of northern Iraq. Can you talk a little bit about what it was? Uh, I, you did a little bit. Talk a little bit more more about what it was like and what challenges you faced um, and maybe what successes you had. Uh, during those years up until right before, I think, 2007? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, I started, UN was my first, actually, my first real job uh, after I graduated from college. And it had nothing to do with my education because my degree at that time, my my undergrad was microbiology, but I always had, maybe it's part of, I don't know, like I do like some leadership in myself so I did management mostly like this is how I started with the United Nations I started in like an operation position and then um you know I changed different positions and the latest one that I spoke to you about being uh, um one of three people who established that office of the coordination with the United Nations um what was so fascinated in that position, because like it was a new concept, new totally, like new office, new co- concept of communication, new level of communication done on a very professional, I would say, level using my experience. My friend also had years of experience with the United Nations. So we both like brought our experience knowing how is the language of communicating with UN, how is mm-hmm. the concept that that organization and to Kurds was very important because UN was since Kurdistan was a de facto government so it was not very international recognized but yeah. having the a strong UF, UN representation in that region was kind of you know important thing for both government yeah. like both administration in Hawler and Sleimani at that time so to me was what, what was very fascinating because you know, at that time, each government or yeah, each government of Slimani and Hawler, they had different ministers for different, like you have two different 
ministers of municipality, for example, two different ministers of education. Each mm-hmm. government had its own you know, establishment for each sector. So what was fascinating was any time, for example, I wanted to um, put put a meeting together to discuss, like, let's say, a, a UNICEF fund to fund some projects in Kurdistan. So anytime I called both administration, and of course, like what I did, I built a network of co- coordination or communication um, assigned like each minister in each government assigned me someone who will be the spokesperson and who will be my my contact person for their administration for their ministry. There they always because those people my my like our main request was we need people who are technocrats who people who like can speak the language of the service ministry that you lead. I don't need anyone who is politically assigned. So anytime I requested anything or we discuss anything, both sides would be extremely supportive and always agree. And, you know, one voice and in, in making decisions like and this at that time, that was so not normal, Josh. Like, I don't know, <laughs> like to, to you, probably it's kind of like you need to imagine it. But to me, being there, I know that this was a major thing. But, but the thing is like that showed me that the normal people, the educated people or people who just were to, do, to get their, the job done or their job done and do some services, they have no like barriers. They do have one goal, and that was that was very nice and a very very good um, experience that you know I will always carry with me wherever I go. Oh, that's that's yeah. interesting. I didn't I didn't expect uh, to hear that. I thought you were going to say, and they would compete with each other. And oh, uh, but... I, no, I, we expected all. that. No, yeah. we expected that, George. But like, trust me, like. That office, oh my God, was amazing. I don't know what happened to it after I left, but was amazing. I'm telling you, like they, for example, I'll give you an example. The swan flu, one of the flus that happened mm-hmm. and became like pandemic. Yeah. Um, we established the room or the operational room of all the like we had um, general directors from both administration working with WHO, with FAO, like all the organizations who are involved. And gosh, like I remember when uh, when we put together a meeting for all the parties in, in um, it was in Jordan. And everyone was so amazed that compared to the rest of Iraq, the Kurdistan region were such a good contribution to provide solutions to you know to speak together and to agree on every single detail to provide like the maximum support and facility to to the, these like the to United Nations and the WHO to mm-hmm. solve that problem in the in the region so it was amazing it was really good days yeah and you know at, yeah. um, at Gian Foundation we have our dialogue program where mm-hmm. the aim of that program is to bring one of the aims of that program is to bring uh you know diverse people together mm-hmm. and a lot of people may not realize but um the kurdish region has very very diverse religions um ethnic groups and people you know self identify as so so many different in so many different ways um but we've we found that we're actually really, really successful with that dialogue program because it's many times, most of the time, people are very willing to to talk, to have dialogue and not just talk about um, their differences, but a lot of times Mm -hmm. they wanna come together and they wanna talk about, you know, what can we do? uh, What can we do to help you? What can you do to help us? And and that's really just something that, you that's don't so realize you can do so well until you do it. That's so true. Yeah, I'm, right. I'm so happy that you brought that up because, like, that's true. Like, it's the real people, like people who are, I would say, subject matter experts, 
they don't have like that sensitivity of like the political sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And that's why I have like a great hope that Kurdistan will be will be a wonderful, a great region at some point. Like if we put those sensitivities, it will be like because there are so many good Kurds, like educated oh, yeah. Kurds, people who really feel the love for, for for the country, for their land. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's also, you know, there's a larger lesson there that anyone listening can kind of take with them. Uh, you know, even the United States where you see lots of, you know, um, bipartisan, uh, uh, not bipartisanship, the opposite <laughs> of people digging their heels in. And, um, you know, if, if you actually just approach in and speak with regular people, you'll find that people are more willing to um, come together and compromise and often have the same goals uh, as each other, much like yeah. you spoke about the the two governments, how they had, did have the same goal. Um, uh, today, there's still in in the Kurdish region of Iraq and uh, in the Kurdish region of Syria and you know, across the region, there's still a number of humanitarian issues uh, that need to be addressed. Um, in your experience, what needs to be done to address marginalized groups uh, across Iraq? Um, you know, what works and what do you think we in the U.S. Uh, and those of us listening can kind of, how can we best contribute or take away from that? I mean, to separate politics from from the the service, let's say, um, yeah. agencies or sectors, like that's the main thing. Like, Josh, I'm telling you, like being uh, like having so many years of experience in Kurdistan as an independent person, a person that never had any politics affiliation or not being in, from a family with political um, affiliations with any party at all, like even back in the death regime uh, years. Um, I do see that whenever you separate the politics um, mm-hmm. from the governing then you will be successful. And I do see that in the U.S. Like when, before I came, before I moved to the U.S., I was like always feeling that, oh my God, U.S., it's an ideal, um, <laughs> you know, picture of um, uh, of independent, like ideas, ideologies of um, democracy and everything. But I do see that here as well. Like I worked um, the first eight years in my life in the U.S., I worked, for the private sector, I worked um, in uh, like on a um, on a project that was funded by uh, in part by um, the Defense Department and the State Department. And my second job was also um, support to some defense projects, mainly in Iraq and like uh, supporting the government. But I also saw how politics can have big influence on even like the the American projects and um, establishments. So I feel that everywhere, I think as long as we don't separate politics and in some parts of Iraq, religion <laughs> separated mm-hmm. from governing, we will have struggles. Same here, like in, in the between the regular ordinary Kurdish individuals in the Kurdish small, very small Kurdish community in Washington DC area, it's, mm-hmm. If I separate that, like the politics and I would say also religion, probably less, but politics from from everything else, things will come together very, very well, I would say. Yeah. And uh, uh, taking a little turn here. So you your own uh, immigrant story is something that I think is really important to who you are. Um, And so. We talked about that you came to the United States in 2007. Um, and I we spoke before and you you guys actually, I think you said you won the, the visa lottery, which is a real thing. People hear it as like, what? It's a real thing. Uh, can you can you talk about- I didn't about believe what? it myself. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it just like, you know, sometimes your fate in life, I think, guides you. My husband doesn't believe in that because he feels that you are what you do and the path that you pay for yourself. Yeah. With me, I feel that it's a fate. Like we didn't plan. We had no plan of leaving the region. We had mm-hmm. really well established life. Good, as I mentioned to you, circle of friends, family and repetitive positions like jobs and everything yeah but when I moved like the main struggle because I I was not supportive to that move but like at the first like the first five years of my life in the U.S. was just like yeah I'm, I'm doing whatever I'm doing just that I get my citizenship I go back to Kurdistan and uh, work yeah. with I build in those few years there but I mean I ended up staying here uh, but it was not easy like judge it's it's it was really hard like you see me that I'm talking I'm so like um, full of all these stories the first five years of my life in the state was just I mean I remember okay my last job back home was just the smallest thing was literally three minutes walk maybe from my my home I would just yeah. like I would be able to see my my office from my doorstep, and then I come to the U.S. My first job I live in South Riding in London County, and my first job was in Arlington. So that's a good two hours commute each way every oh my day. Gosh, that's a whole normal shift. circumstances. Just traveling four hours at least minimum of four hours driving every day just to get to work, and at the end like being from like a Kurdish or Middle Eastern family. I had two young kids that I had to attend to. I had really so like I was socially involved and I had um, to, for example, cook every day. Like all these duties made me feel like so overwhelmed. So hated that we made the decision to move. So it was hard. It was really hard on me, on probably the girls. Um, But I mean, uh, and I do use that example sometimes when I work, like I work with clients, like mm-hmm. um, upset clients or clients who cannot be on their feet and, um, you know, adapt to the life. I give them my own example. I tell them, like, this is how I started. Like, I didn't give up. I started, you know, doing my master's two years after we moved. Mm-hmm. And I finished, I was like, my target was to finish my master's in one year and then because I was, you know, I was tasked with some additional uh, work. I had a part-time job and a full-time job and yeah, a very busy yeah. life. So I had to delay some semesters. So I ended up like doing it in 18 months, but it's still like, you know, I didn't give up. I was working so hard. I would be traveling to Rockville to take a class. And the next day, like coming home around one o'clock, the next day I have to be at work at eight o'clock without oh my gosh. hours commute. Yeah, and um, still, like, did it? It didn't affect me. It's um, it mentally didn't affect me. It socially didn't affect me. It made me really probably stronger. And I do feel, I do see that the effect of that resilience, let's say, in in my daughters, like they're really hardworking. They're they're extremely hardworking. Sometimes I feel that they can slow down a little bit, like <laughs> get alive. <laughs> yeah, I don't want them to be like me, but I mean, I do see that they taking the steps, they following the steps that I did in life. So they were um, children when you came to the US. How old were they? They were nine and six. My nine older one was nine. Yep. And uh, they both like, they... They went to American school back home, so they didn't have any problem with the language. So they had to be integrated in the same classes, class levels. The problem that I had with my older one, she went to school when she was really young, five. And Mm -hmm. I insisted on her to not go back. And um, that was kind of, you know, something that I regretted at some points because I pushed her to be with, with children who are older in age than her and you know like uh, the teenage versus like you put a child a kid with yeah. with kids who are in their teenage and she's in between like her own age and the attitude of those kids so it came with so many struggles but I mean luckily enough it's um, 
we came out from all the experience. Uh, yeah, you know, one time wiser, when I stronger, <laughs> way stronger. <laughs> yeah. I told you that the first five years I was so overwhelmed. So I don't want to call myself depressed, but so resistant to the fact that yeah. I am in like her and this is my new home, new life. Like I have mm-hmm. to adopt. I couldn't adopt. I couldn't force myself to adopt. So I was busy with my mental preparation for the new life. I feel that I didn't pay that much attention. So it was when she was in um, ninth grade or 10th grade that she opened up to me and she told me, mom, like, that was hard, so hard on me. Like people didn't accept me. And I finally, mm. after four years, I feel that I have the confidence to talk to people. And back home, she was one of the leading students. She was she was such a popular thing in her school. Like she was so, so smart and so like strong in her leadership and mm-hmm. leading almost everything so and then I was like wow so that's hard on on the kids probably maybe more than us like the the grown-ups because like they carry that with them as a trauma probably for years to come I mean luckily enough because you know the social circle that we surrounded her with she didn't develop any real traumas or anything but it, it could be hard it could be really hard Without yeah. you seeing how hard it is on on different people. Oh, you know that's that's actually a good point, and I think that kind of um, that's a kind of a good segue into you know what Jian Foundation mainly does is our work with mental health, mm-hmm. um, and our work with mental health across uh, the Kurdish region and Central Iraq, and um, and you said before you you said before that you don't think the 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 struggle of immigrating to the United States really um, affected your mental health, but it sounds like you do do have some um, I don't know that that you've thought about it a little bit, and especially your work as you know in policy and in development and in you know post conflict regions and I mean even not post conflict regions mental health is a very important um, aspect of how people respond to everything. Um, where do you see like mental health in regard to development, whether that's, uh, development on the large scale for the Kurdish region or just personal and professional development? It's so nice that you brought that up because the other day I had a, um, a conversation with my brother-in-law who's, who's a cardiosurgeon and he, he studied in Germany and he lives in Kurdistan and he has his own clinic and we were, Okay, so let me give you an example. So I, when I, my my current job, I've been on this job for um, three and a half years. I work with London County government. So the first week with London County, I just saw an advertisement for a workshop for um, ACs. And I was so like, when I saw that, I never seen it before. I say, what's ACs? Like adverse childhood experience. Mm -hmm. And I said, wow, I never heard of that. So let me just attend. And I was supposed to attend several like workshops and stuff. Um, it's I'm really happy that you brought this up, Josh. Um, so I go to this um, workshop feeling that I'm the most stable person. Like when I compare myself and my mental health to uh-huh. um, to the regular American peers of mine or people that I meet, like neighbors, stuff. I feel that oh my god, like with the amount that the tr- amount of traumas that I went through in my life, like I was five when the Iraq-Iran war, for example, started. And I remember because like where my family's house was, one of the first bombs hitted a school, like a kindergarten next to our school. And I was just six years old being like, I had to run back home and kids would be lost. And, and then like, the eight years of war, like you spend so many nights just not knowing if you wake up with your ceiling still like in place or you under the, you know, buried under the, the rocks and, you know, the ceiling of your house. So all this trauma and then the Gulf War started, like 
88 is when the Iraq-Iran war stopped. And then 1991 as well, the first Gulf War started. I remember like the first night of the first airstrike. My older sister, she's she's a doctor. She was she in med school. I think she was first year of med. She started crying and she refused to go to a basement because we wanted to get and hide from the, the bombings. She goes, no, it's a chemical because they harassed us with chemical bombs. So she refused to go. And my mom was like, um, you know, you, you just feel like no electricity and it's middle of the night and like there's a chaos. Like my mom is crying, begging my sister. My sister is in this mental crisis. She doesn't want to. Like all these traumas. And there were times that... We were taken as hostage to be used back in 91, 92, 96, 96 actually, I think I was in college, to be used as human shields when Saddam took over the region. It like so many things. I, my, I saw so many people being um, executed in front of my naked eyes because where my family's house was, we could like in upstairs and we had a room that we could see the the square that was one of like they would be just tidying young kids who were accused being opposition of the government and kill them and I would we would see them hugging on those poles. So like all these traumas, all these like things that happened in my life but I feel that I'm always a happy the most positive person among all my friends like I feel that I and before that workshop I felt that I had the most stable mental <laughs> health so I go and the the professor who was you know leading the workshop he said he made us do an assessment and he passes on some questions and he says um so now you will check I think it was 12 questions, I believe. So you will check any of these that you went through in your life, like so a person killed in front of your eyes, like stuff like that. And I keep checking, checking. And he goes like any person with more than seven um, boxes checked, this person needs severe mental treatment. Guess how many of them I had? I swear, either 12 or 13. And I was kind of like nice to myself. I didn't check some that I was like, ah, not oh. very much involved. And I was like, oh my God, then I have to be in a mental health facility. So I <laughs> raised my hand and I say, yeah, not like a normal person, you know, living in the society. So I raised my hand and it was so fascinating to me because like it was first time attending such a workshop about mental health. Mm -hmm. So I told the professor, I told him, I told him what I just told you now. I said like, and I feel that I'm the most stable person. Like all my friends come to me if they have an issue or if they have a debate at work, I'm the person that it's the most dependent on in like fixing like uh, escalated issues or like right. calming people down, like bring people to common grants and stuff like that. I was always very much known for that. And I said, like, tell me how, like scientifically from what you just explained and the assessment, I'm supposed to be a really psychopath, not a normal person. Hmm. So what he, he asked me some, some questions about where I am from, how was my social circle when I went growing up. So when I told him, he said that you are so lucky that you grown up in a society where people are still bonded together okay where people are like the neighbors will be coming together to go to the shelter for example like if i'm sick my neighbor will be supporting me like i remember like in one of the ways i remember when like the guys of the neighborhood say that kill us all but just keep the women and the the children to go home like we were supportive to each other you had people who went through the same thing all together at the same time so it was impossible for everyone to go crazy of their like traumas so we adjusted mentally to all the problems because it was not just me it was not just my sister it was almost everyone. So the next day when we went to school, everyone would be telling about their experience last night with the airstrike, for example. Oh. So 
he said that this is really important. And what is so... And oh, I'm sorry, Damon, can you, can you repeat that? You disconnected for a second. I told you. Yeah, so what is said, though, and that's why I was so happy that you brought this up, we have this in Kurdistan. So Kurdistan now, in, in the path of development, in the path of um, opening towards the, the world, okay, there are some movements who call for just me, like you, like less of community involvement. Like if you want to do something, just do it. Don't care about anyone else. Like leave for yourself. Like those kind of movements now that we do see in, and I do like, I don't read that much of the Kurdish media, but when I, um, when I had that discussion with my brother-in-law and he goes like, so I brought that up to him and I said, like, it's so sad because if people know how important that community is, they would never try to alter it with the Western, let's say, modernization. I live for myself, me and my family. I don't care about my neighbor. I mm-hmm. like smaller communities or just individuals versus communities. I was like, oh, like this is this is why you see like back in the day committing suicide was something that it's a very big taboo in the Kurdish community now it's very very normal you see kids yeah. in high school they don't pass an exam they commit suicide like yes unfortunately Josh like I do feel that difference now and I hope that Kurdistan will not like with probably I mean I don't know exactly what like all the mandates of Jian, but I feel like we are desperate for those kind of organizations, for the, the, the awareness in the community. I have one of my best friends. She's a psychiatric. Um, she finished her degree in London, and she's working so hard because, unfortunately, we don't have so many psychiatric. Like back in the day, yeah. we rarely had. And if a person goes to a psychiatric, they would be calling that person crazy versus yeah. now. I'm happy that it's normal. People seek like mental treatment and counseling and those kind of things. But I'm sad that they, like my friend was telling me, Dima, like it's just like you remember how we had friends and my, my elementary school friends are still my good, good friends until today. Because you don't see that between the kids. Yeah, we don't. We don't see that like connection between peers, between people, between family members. So, yeah, I mean, I feel that this is something probably the Kurdish government can work on with the help from organizations like yours and foundations that really look into the issue. Yeah, community connectedness, right? And knowing you have the support of the community. Um, I think that's a really, that's a really solid take. Um, and I, I like how you drew the relationship there between the, your community support, um, and how that maybe affected your mental health, um, going through all of that. And cause that, that's actually, that, that's something that our, uh, psychotherapists address often wow, is that, uh, in that region that it's whole communities of people experiencing the same things. And so these traumas stick with with the whole community, and uh, like we do, do things like um, group therapy and and uh, programs like that that really involve you know other members uh, of mm-hmm. the group. Um, but I think I think your story really just kind of really just kind of brings everything together through your perspective. I think that's that's really something, um, and I think you're an excellent storyteller. And an excellent communicator. And I do, I really, really do encourage you to um, continue down this path that you have chosen with sharing your experience and and talking with people. Because, um, yeah, you're definitely right. You you, uh, have this keen ability to kind of reach across. And I don't know, maybe you have trusting eyes. I don't know what it is, but I, I feel like people respond very, very well. Um, to you and I think that's that's something that we definitely need 
uh, everywhere right now. That's a really appreciate the compliment, Josh. Thank you so much. And it's one of probably, no, I did some other interviews before on like specific things, but it's first time that I, I mean, I do a proper interview at my daughter's school when I had to go and tell some history right. facts to a bunch of elementary school, maybe third graders, I think. Yeah, but I mean, it's nice because now that I'm talking to you, I also like found, I don't know, like sometimes you, when you say the things that you feel, you find some hidden thoughts you yeah. know, in your head that it's um, probably stuff that you need to stop by, which is really nice. And, you know, I'm, I'm telling you the story that I have, maybe mine is the one of the most ordinary stories among, like, I know that's the Kurds, every, every single Kurdish person, for example, in this region has so many stories to tell because mm-hmm. every single one of them went through a lot. And I know a lot, like maybe I'm very fortunate because I came here not as a refugee or asylee. Asylum seeker, yeah. Forced to flee. I came, yeah. exactly. I came based on my own will, like winning the lottery and deciding on the move, on the immigration. And uh, But you still, like you hear story and you see how, like the, the milestones of my life, like has affected, um, you know, my my life, my family, my kids, my surroundings, and yeah, it's it's good to tell the story sometimes. I I tell everyone who is in my situation, please do not um, doubt your abilities, and you can do. Everyone can do so much. Trust me. It's just like believing in your abilities and having the the confidence. That's the key. All right. Thank you very much. Our guest today is Demon Pierdewood. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Josh. Thank you so much. Have a good evening. Thank you for joining us. Support Gian Foundation and this podcast by going to gian.org forward slash donate. J-I-Y-A-N dot O-R-G forward slash donate.